The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we, as we uh, go to the text of Scripture. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning that we indeed have a high priest, a great high priest, our good shepherd who has gone before us, who has laid down his life for the sheep. Not that any could take it from him, but he laid it down of himself. Father, we thank you that he has obeyed you all the way to the cross the death of a cross. And Father, we thank you that you have raised him up because there was no sin in him. Father, we have raised him up to declare with power to us all that he is truly the Son of God. Father, we thank you that our Savior has been exalted and raised up and he is indeed seated at your right hand. Father, we thank you that we have such a high priest a minister in the true tabernacle. Father, we thank you and praise you, O God, that our Savior is praying for us even this moment. Father, we thank you and we praise you for you are the most holy God, a God who is most majestic and glorious, a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, a God who is unchangeable in your person, your purposes, and your promise. Father, we thank you for the unchangeableness of our God. Father, we thank you and we praise you that indeed you are a God who relates to your people. And Father, we thank you that you have related to us, first of all, in redeeming us, in saving us, in paying the redemption price that set us free from slavery to sin and brought us into sonship. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We worship you this morning, O God, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Father, we thank you for the great hope that we have because of who Christ is. Father, we thank you, as we saw last Sunday morning, that we are indeed in Christ, that we have inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, for all that you have done for us and accomplished for us. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. Father, we thank you that it is a true Word. It is the inerrant word of God. It is authoritative. Father, we thank you that it's clear, so clear that a small child can read it and understand. And Father, so deep and so complex and so profound that the greatest scholars can never in eternity understand its full depths. And Father, we thank you for the clear, plain message of the Bible that points us straight to Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have hope. We have new life. Father, we have eternity. Father, we have every spiritual blessing in him. And Father, we thank you for the way that you have put your word together. Father, we thank you that the Old Testament has all those beautiful pictures and patterns and and types that point us to Christ. And Father, we thank you for the study in the tabernacle. And Father, we pray that as we go into it, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would understand better the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would understand better what it means to be a part of the people of God, the church. And Father, as our responsibility and our privileges as priests, Father, you have made us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people, as First Peter says, 
for your own possession. Father, we thank you that you have set us free. And like living stones, you are building us up on the great cornerstone that is Christ. And Father, we thank you that you have saved us, that we might declare the praises of the living God. Father, we ask you for help this morning as we would open the scriptures. And Father, as we would survey them from Genesis 2 all the way to Exodus 25 and see some great and very key points that set up and help us to understand the function and the place of the tabernacle. Father, for this great truth, we give thanks that the Lord our God dwells amongst his people. He dwelt amongst, you dwelt amongst the people of God in the Old Testament, in the place of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. But Father, we praise you and we thank you already that Christ has torn down that veil by his death, that the way into God is clear, that we might step through, step past the bronze altar at the entrance of the tabernacle, step past the great laver, step past the five pillars outside the tabernacle, step into the holy place and step past the the table of showbread and the the lampstand and the altar of incense and step right through the holy of holies veil and into your presence. Father, we thank you that no longer is there the need for us to bring the blood of bulls and goats, which could never atone for sin and could never cleanse our conscience. Father, we thank you and we praise you that Christ has indeed offered his blood once for all, that he has washed us and our conscience is clean. And Father, we can stand in your very presence this morning and rejoice in you and worship, worship without terrifying fear, but yet in the fear of the Lord, in awe and wonder and reverence and respect for the living God. Father, we ask you that you would speak to every heart that hears this message, and we ask you these things, Father, seeking your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and we will go uh, to the book of Exodus this morning. The book of Exodus and uh, chapter 25, Exodus 25, and you will see as I begin to read it, you'll catch the connection between this text and the one we read in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews, uh, sorry, Exodus 25, and we'll read the first nine verses, the the first paragraph there, and we're going to focus at the end on the last verse, verse Uh, Sorry, verse 8, not the last one. And Exodus 25, beginning at verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant insects, incense, onyx stones and steading stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. The tabernacle is all about the one true God of the Bible, relating to to his people whom he is redeeming, revealing himself to, 
and residing amongst. The tabernacle serves as a three-dimensional picture, an illustration, and an object lesson to help us understand the Christ who came, the church he is building, and ourselves as Christians who worship, who witness, and who do the work of the Lord. In a sense, it's a, a beautiful answer to several often asked questions. Does God really care about us? Does God see our pain, our sorrows, and our hurts? Is God interested in in something so seemingly inconsequential as one single human in comparison to the immeasurable reaches of the universe he created? Has God, who created us and commanded our obedience and promises to condemn our disobedience or crown our obedience, has this God done anything to help us to achieve that obedience and that crown? And in picture form, the tabernacle points to God's answer. Yes, indeed, God does care. God does see. God is interested and God has acted so that we might one day be crowned for obedience. But as we know from the balance of Scripture, it's not our obedience, it's Christ's obedience. And we receive a crown that we then have the joy to cast back at his feet. Well, I want us to know or be reminded of the fact that God is involved with us in our world. God has intervened to rescue his people and save us from ourselves, our sin, our world, and from his own anger against us. The tabernacle is the evidence of God's presence with his people and at the same time points to Christ who is now present with his people in a far greater and far more intimate way. But the tabernacle itself is not the beginning of the story. You'll notice on your, on your note sheet that our text for today is the verses from Genesis 2.16 all the way through to Exodus 25 and verse 9. If my math is correct, that's something like 25 plus 48, which is uh, 63, if my math is correct. But we're not going to read all of that, and we won't cover all of it in any detail. What we will do is spend our time skimming through those chapters to pick up several key and important highlights of the story from Genesis to Exodus, and we'll finish up in the passage we read, uh, Genesis 25, 8 and 9. The story of the tabernacle begins back in Genesis 2, and you remember we were studying there some months ago at the building on Harold Road, and in Genesis 2, God built and planted the Garden of Eden. God designed Eden as a sanctuary within his greater creation. Man and woman were placed there to commune with God, the creator, their creator. Man and woman were to enjoy uninhibited fellowship and freedom and communion with God in sinless perfection as God's living statues displaying God's image and likeness to the rest of creation. God gave the man and woman one covenant command to be obeyed. So the sole condition for their continuing in the garden was obedience to that command. And we all know how the story unfolded. 
Eve and then Adam chose to listen to the certain the serpent and Satan's words and they fell or rather they stepped away away from God and into sin having disobeyed and sinned their consciences were now awakened and they immediately felt shame and tried to hide themselves first from each other by covering up and then ultimately from God and God comes calls and he questions Adam and Eve about their actions. Adam and Eve each refuse responsibility and instead reassign the blame first to God, then to the woman, and finally to the serpent. God curses the serpent and condemns the man and woman and the whole human race after them to living under the curse of sin. And God promises to provide a redeemer who will come and crush the head of the serpent and save his people. God then covers their nakedness with the skins of a fleshly, freshly slain animal who takes their place, dying as a substitute sacrifice to soothe God's anger and cover their shame. And finally, in a very sad An awful moment, God drives them away, and a distance, a great distance, is established between God and man. And then from Genesis 4 to 11, God deals with the whole of humanity, the flood and the Tower of Babel, and so on. And then Genesis 12 to 25, God narrows his dealings to to dealing with one man and his family. Abraham and Sarah, who serve as a vivid illustration of justification by faith and uh, through faith in God to keep his promises. There's a fan right above my head, and it's, it's freezing me, so I'm going to turn it off. There we go. Adam and Eve, oh sorry, Abraham and Sarah serve as a vivid illustration of justification by grace through faith. In God to keep his promises. And then in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, you remember the stories? God makes or cuts a covenant with Abraham, promising them land and great nation, a great name and a great blessing. He promises that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the balance of Genesis traces the stories of Abraham's descendants. And so Genesis ends with Abraham's descendants in Egypt. And the book of Exodus opens up some 320 years into the 400 years of Jacob's sons in Egypt. Pharaoh has enslaved the sons of Jacob and Israel with the cruel slavery. In Exodus 2 and verse 24, we read these very key words, that God heard the sons of Israel groaning in their slavery. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Sarah, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice, and God is concerned and cares about his people's circumstances. And God begins to intervene to work to free his people from slavery. Those descriptions... Hearing, remembering, seeing, being concerned, and so on. They're all descriptions of a God who is relational. God is unchanging. The Bible makes that clear in his 
person. Praise God that he never changes in his person. He is always all-powerful and all-knowing and, and uh, uh, holy and just and all those things. But God is unchanging in his purposes. He has one purpose from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, from eternity past to eternity future. His one singular purpose is to gather all things in creation under the headship of Christ. And his promises are unchangeable. God makes promises and swear by his own self to keep his promises. But God is also relational. God relates to his creation, especially his chosen people. God purposes in eternity, but he relates in time. Just as God heard Israel's groaning, so also he has heard our groaning under the weight of sin's curse. Just as God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so also he remembered his promise to Eve in the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. And so all of mankind would be set free, all those that trust and obey and repent of sin. And just as God took notice of Israel's desperate condition, so also he took notice of our condition, our sin, our misery, and our death. And God being the one true God, full of love and mercy and grace and compassion, is interested in you and I. And he is active to deal with and remove our sin. He's active to enjoy fellowship with us as his chosen people. He is active to bring us to holiness and purity of life. He's active to teach us his commands and to obey his commands. He's active and interested to teach us to joyfully worship him. He is so involved in our lives, every aspect of our lives, to be a witness for him and to do the work of the Lord that he has given us. But you know, that's not all. God is also interested in how we relate to each other. God is interested and active in our lives as men and women, as husbands and wives and children, as employees and employers, as in our marriages, our families and our work. Listen, God knows more about us than we could ever know about ourselves. God loves us. He loves you and I with a great love to do the very best for us. God cares about you far more than any other person in existence. God has already completed his great work on our behalf to give you and I the hearts of joy and fulfillment in life. But the reality is, or rather the question is that must stand before us, have we responded to what God has done? Which, of course, begs the question, what has God done? Now, the events recorded in Exodus are real, genuine, historical events. They're not just myths and stories from some bygone age. They really did happen. But those events also serve as powerful illustrations and promises for what God did in and through Christ, who came some approximately 1,500 years after the Exodus. They're recorded in Scripture as God's inspired revelation, serving to direct our attention toward Christ. 
And I want us to see this morning, as you can see on your note sheet, that God relates to us. In Exodus 12, God relates to us by first redeeming us, saving us. In Exodus 19 and 20, we can see the promise there that God relates to us by revealing himself to us. In Exodus 25 to 31, where we'll spend some time in the next few weeks, God relates to us by residing with us. There is his redeeming work, his revealing work, and his residing with us and then in us. And so the first heading this morning is God relates to us by redeeming us. You remember God's command to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 is that disobedience to his command will bring death. In the old King James, it says, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You remember also that by Adam's disobedience, all humanity is under the curse of sin and death, including God's covenant people. In Romans 5.12, we see how that by one man's disobedience, all of us fell into sin and we all died as Adam died. We all die. At the close of the garden scene, you remember we read just a few moments ago, or we spoke about a few moments ago, God brought and killed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve with its skin. God displayed in real three-dimensional picture form that he will accept an innocent victim as a substitute to die in the sinner's place. If you take your Bibles and just flip over to Exodus chapter 12, we'll look at a a few points in the story there. And most of you will remember, this is just describing the Passover event. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, the Bible tells us that God tells the sons of Israel, they are to each bring a lamb. For every family, for every man, a lamb. In Exodus 12 and verse 5, the Bible tells us that that lamb was to be inspected and closely examined to ensure that it was unblemished. It is to be killed and the blood is to be gathered and collected in bowls. And in verse 7, the Bible tells us in Exodus 12, the blood was to be painted with hyssop, which was like a a brush-like plant that grew. They would have dipped that in the blood and they would have painted it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. Then they would remain inside the house and to eat the roast lamb and wait for God's deliverance. God promised the people of Israel that on that very night, he would go through the land of Egypt and strike dead all the firstborn of all those who had refused to kill the lamb and by faith to paint its blood on the doorpost and the lintel or the beam. That blood was a clear visible sign painted on the post and beam declaring to God and to all that saw it that this family, this home was protected by the lamb's blood. God saves all who by faith obey his commands. The Passover describes for us in detail that God is a redeeming, saving God. We know the story at the midnight hour, the angel went across and all those who had not taken and killed the lamb and painted the blood in its doorpost and lintel, the firstborn son in every home, the firstborn animal was, was killed in God's judgment. 
Passover de uh, describes in detail that God is a redeeming, saving God. For Israel, their greatest problem was not slavery, but sin. Before people of Israel could be set free from slavery in Egypt, God must deal with that issue of sin. Now, in reality, those lambs didn't save anybody. Not one, not all the blood of all the bulls and goats throughout all of history that have been sacrificed on Jewish altars can save one person from anything. But what they do do is they point towards the future. They point to Christ, the true Lamb of God, who would die for all his people. You know the verse in John chapter 3, I believe it is, where, no, not John 3, John 1, where uh, John the Baptist sees Christ coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reality is, that all those lambs, all those bulls, all those goats, goats pointed to Christ, the true Lamb of God, who would die for all his people. So how does all of this, what does this old story have to do with us? Well, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, writing to Gentile Christians, says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, meaning for us. Christ has died as God's provided substitute lamb to set us free from God's wrath against us for our sin. Our God is a redeeming, saving God. Our God relates to us, first of all, by redeeming us. And the question that we must answer is, have we responded to what God has done? Remember, Romans 3 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says that you and I, both Jew and Gentile, all of us alike are under sin. In Romans 6 verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that we're all in slavery to sin. None are able to free themselves from it, just like Israel in Egypt. But God has paid the redemption price with Christ's blood and death. So what is required for us to receive the benefit of Christ's death? By faith, we obey God. Just as the Israelites, in faith, painted blood on the door and the doorpost, so we, by faith, trust in God, and we turn away from committing sin, and we submit in obedience to God. By faith. We strive to obey all that God tells us to do. God relates to us first by redeeming us. And then we have the second heading that God relates to us by revealing himself to us. Moses led the people of Israel that night out of Egypt just as God had told him to do. And Exodus 13 to 20 describes the stories of Moses leading the people of Israel through the Red Sea and, and how God provided them with water at Elam and, and bread from heaven, manna, and so on. And God leads them, God and Moses together lead the people of Israel to the mountain of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, there in Exodus 19 and 20, God brings Moses up onto the mountain to give him the law. And there God reveals his mind and his will for his people. God did not merely bring them out of slavery to live any way that they chose or pleased. God did not redeem them to live in ignorance of him and his will. 
God redeemed and saved them out of Egypt into a relationship with himself. The Bible tells us in Exodus 19 and verse 4 that God bore them to himself as if on eagles' wings. They are to be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a very specific identity. In Exodus 20 and verse 2, God reminds them as he gives them the law, he reminds them of who he is and what he has done. What he has done in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. Now, an ancient Near Eastern covenant-making tradition as two nations would make a covenant, the weaker nation would be identified, and then the stronger nation would be identified. And they, Israel, are identified as the poor, minor, weak, vassal nation, dependent upon God, the Lord their God, who is their all-powerful suzerain king. God, in relationship with his people, spoke to them. God came down on the mountain and spoke with Moses, and Moses took the words to the people of Israel. We'll look at that more in just a few minutes. God revealed to them his perfect plan for their behavior. God revealed what he requires of them in relating to him in the commands, the first four commands of the Ten Commandments relate to God himself how they are to respond in obedience to God. God also revealed what he required for them in relating to each other. The commands 5 to 10 relate relate to our behavior with each other. Now, something that we should remember here, we talk about the law and often speak about it in negative terms, but the Bible makes it very clear that there is absolutely nothing wrong with God's law. In fact, Paul in Romans 7 and verse 12 says that the law is holy, it is just, and it is good. The problem is we, with our sin nature that we've inherited from Adam and Eve, because as they fell into sin, we were taken with them, we, because of our sin, are unable to perfectly obey the law in every moment for all of life, and so the law's curse falls on us. The people of God were given the law of God on the mountain. God's law and God's word all pointed to Christ. And just as God had descended to the mountaintop to speak and reveal himself to Israel through Moses, so also God has come in the person of Christ to reveal God to us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in son. That's literally how the text reads. God not only revealed himself on stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, as the Bible will tell us, and God not only revealed himself through the mouths and writings of men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, God also revealed himself to us in son. The son of God, Jesus Christ, is the full ultimate, perfect revelation of God to us. In John 1 verse 14, the Bible tells us that God has come as the word become flesh. 
In John 1.18, the Bible tells us that no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And that word literally means he has expounded or exegeted or quite literally unfolded for us to see. He would say to one of his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. God revealed himself through the writings and the prophets in the Old Testament, but God revealed himself fully and ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God redeemed us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God revealed us, revealed himself to us in the person of Christ. What does God require of us in response to his revelation? And the answer is, are we listening to what God has revealed to us? about himself, about Christ, about ourselves. The scriptures describe how our relationship to God ought to be, how a relationship with others ought to be. It is complete. It's inerrant. It's everything we need for life and practice, witness and worship. Are we striving in the enabling of the Holy Spirit to hear, to discern, and to apply the truths of God's word to every part of our lives? Do we take seriously the things that God says about sin and holiness in his word? One of the most powerful themes that you you gather as you read through Leviticus and Exodus is that God is a holy God and we are a sinful humanity and there's a fear of the Lord that ought to be there because he is God who is absolutely holy and we in our sin will be snuffed out like a wax figurine standing in front of a a furnace, a blast furnace. But we also see the grace and the love of God, the compassion of God. God's intervening on our behalf. Even as we unpack and look at the tabernacle, we'll see how God makes in grace great concession that he might have a relationship with his people. Do we take seriously the things that God says in his word about sin and holiness? about fearing the Lord and serving him with rejoicing? Do we take seriously, in other words, with an intention to obey all that God says of himself about worship, about witness and evangelism, evangelism, about the work of the Lord? I was reading just the other day in Jeremiah, in my regular readings, and, and as often happens, one verse leapt off the page. And the verse just, it was this, Cursed is the one who does the work of the Lord negligently. Cursed. The one who does the work that the Lord has given him to do, the work of the Lord in witness and and preaching and teaching and so on. Cursed is the one who does it negligently. Why is it that God places such a high standard? Why is it God holds to such a high account those who would minister for the Lord in his name? Because we are representing the living God to his people and to his creation. Do we take, do we, sorry, do we strive not merely to know chapters and verses, not merely to know the content of God's word, but do we strive to know God, know himself through his word? 
God has revealed himself to us in scripture, in the Lord Jesus Christ. What place does God's revelation in his word have in our lives? God relates to us through his word as one married partner to another who writes love letters. So God has revealed himself and related to us in his word. Do we respond to it as authoritative over us? Or are we like that one U.S. president, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who took his Bible and a little pen knife? And he began to cut out the verses in the Bible that he didn't think that Jesus would really have said, that God really meant. And if you look at his Bible, it's, it's a very holy Bible. It's just full of holes. He's cut passages and sections out here, there, and everywhere. And so he took the Bible of, and, and he decided what he thought was authoritative and what he felt that God would have said and cut everything else out. No, the Bible is God's authoritative word over us. Do we receive it and submit to it as inerrant? Do we value God's word to us as a vital necessity for all of life? God has related to us. He revealed himself to us in his word and in his son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God in relationship to his people in the Old Testament revealed himself to them, speaking to them. God in relationship with us through Christ's life and death and resurrection has revealed himself to us. How are we responding? Third heading is this, that God relates to us by residing with us and in us. And we finally get to our sermon text. And the the text as I was reading and studying, the, the line that just stood out off the page was this one. In Exodus 25 and verse, that's 26, 25 and verse number 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, and this is what stuck out, that I may dwell among them. God may dwell amongst his people. In Exodus 19 and verses 18 and 19, when God came down onto Mount Sinai, it caused fire and smoke and thunder and trumpet blasts and earthquakes. In Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, when the people heard and saw the thunder, the lightning, etc., they trembled and were afraid. They stood at a distance. Moses, you speak to God, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. They were terrified of the Lord God in all his holiness. How can an immense, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God dwell amongst sinful humanity? God, if you remember, drove the woman and the man from the garden because God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. That's Habakkuk 2.13 tells us that. Surely the holiness of God would strike out and destroy them. You remember this, that the real atonement offering has yet to be made. All that has been done so far and all through the Old Testament times was a reminder pointing ahead to what Christ will do. So as we will see. God gave Moses the plans and the patterns. This tabernacle structure had many purposes, but one overarching purpose, or one 
not stated, but certainly implicit there. It was to remind them that God is absolutely holy and they and we are sinful and they must remain separated from God. Even though God is among them, even though his tabernacle is there in the center of the camp, the camps are spaced away a distance from the tabernacle. There is an outer wall, there's an inner tabernacle, and then there's an inner space in behind that. The people could come into the outer courtyard, but they could not go into the holy place. The priest could go into the holy place, but they could not go into the holy of holies. And once a year, and never without blood, the whole the high priest could go into the holy of holies with a cloud of smoke veiling his face, covering up so he could not see as he sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He was amongst his people, but he was certainly kept separate from them. We're going to look at what the tabernacle illustrates for us about Christ and the Christian and the church. But listen, praise God We're going to get to this next week, but praise God that that the story of his residing amongst us does not end there with God forever behind three levels of wall inside the Holy of Holies. Praise God that Christ has come and dwelt among his people right beside them, rubbing shoulders with them. In John 1 verse 14, the Bible says, the word who is God has become flesh and literally tented or tabernacled among us. He has dwelt among us. God in the person of Christ took upon himself flesh and blood. He was born. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. And he died on the cross. He has kept God's promise to Eve to crush the head of the serpent. He has come and dwelt among us as God's promise to Abraham of a descendant in whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He has come and dwelt among us as the true Passover lamb to redeem and save his people. His blood, not painted, but certainly soaked over the cross, the upright and the cross beam. He has come as truly man, truly God, to fulfill all the types of sacrifices described in the book of Leviticus in detail. He has come and dwelt amongst us and borne our sins away. He's come and by his blood, he has washed our consciences clean. All the blood of bulls and goats, the book of Hebrews tells us, could not wash a guilty conscience clean, but Christ's blood shed once for all could wash it clean. He has come and fed us with the true bread from heaven. They receive manna to eat. We receive Christ who dwells in us. He has come and given us the true water of life. Moses hit a rock twice with a rod. God broke open a rock to provide water when they need it. But we have Christ who came and dwelt among us that we might drink of the water of life who is Christ and never thirst again. He has come. He has been, in a sense, offered on the bronze altar. He has come and his blood has been shed. He has washed us clean, far more clean than all the water in the great laver could ever wash the priest and the sacrifices clean. He has come and pulled aside the five pillars at the front of the tabernacle and walked in. He has walked past 
the altar of showbread. He's worked of the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the lampstand. He is the true light. The lampstand is no longer needed. He is the true bread of life. The table of showbread is no longer needed. He now stands in heaven seated beside his father, always offering up prayer on our behalf. The altar of incense is no longer needed. He reached up and he grabbed the Holy of Holies veil and he's torn it away so that we might come in. We might go into the very presence of the living God and worship and serve. He has come so that God might come out and reside amongst us inside the very hearts of his people. Christ has come that God may dwell with us and in us in the person of God's Holy Spirit. God relates to his people. He relates by redeeming us, by saving us. He related to us by revealing himself to us in his word and ultimately in his son. He relates to us by residing with us and now in us. And so what do we do with all of this? God relates to us, so we respond. We must respond and relate to God who relates to us. By faith, we turn away from sin and turn towards him. By faith, we trust in God who cares for us with a loving care that is beyond our comprehension. By faith, we strive to walk with the Lord relating to him. By faith, we strive to listen to his word and to obey it. By faith, we respond and commune with God in prayer. By faith, we live in the sure comfort and knowledge of God's presence amongst us and in each of us. We rejoice in him with an exceedingly great joy because God does care. God does know who we are. He has known us from the before the foundation of the earth. God is interested in us. God created us for relationship with himself and by faith in God, we relate to him who redeemed us and spoke to us and filled us with his very presence. What an amazing God. What amazing savior we have this morning. May our hearts be filled with joy as we stop and meditate and respond to the God who relates to us. Let's close in prayer and then we'll uh, sing one more hymn this morning and then we'll close with a benediction. Loving Father, again, we just stand before you in awe and amazement. And Father, as we think back to that scene at Mount Sinai and the living God, mighty God, holy God, all-powerful, majestic God, infinite As Solomon said, Father, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. And you stepped down and set foot on top of Mount Sinai. And the people were terrified. And they stayed at a great distance. And Father, we realize at a later date as the tabernacle was, was finished and your presence entered and filled that tabernacle and you resided in the Shekinah of your glory above the mercy seat and between the two cherubims. And Father, all of it was grace. All of it was unimaginably great grace. Because all those animals shed, all the blood that they shed could not atone for sin. 
but all of it did preach that one day Christ would come. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us. You've given us everything that we need to know for life and practice, for worship, for witness, and for ministry. Father, we ask you this morning that the weight of these truths would sink deeply in our own hearts. That, Father, we would never again come to worship without first realizing what a great freedom we have in Christ. Father, we thank you that outside Noble Park Baptist Church there does not stand a great bronze altar, blood-smoked, blood-soaked, fire and heat and smoke rising continually from its presence. Father, we thank you that we do not all have to stand outside at a distance, unable to see, unable to go in, Father, ever prevented and hindered. Father, we thank you and we praise you that at the moment of his death, as Christ shouted that great word, finished, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Father, in a majestic sense, you were able to come out Father, we thank you that we are also able to come in. Father, we thank you that you have not just filled a tent with your presence. You have filled each one of us with the Holy Spirit for those of us who love you and trust you and believe in you and walk with you. Father, I plead with you that for all of us, you would impress these truths on our hearts. Father, we thank you for the great salvation. Father, we want to say that we love the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done. We love you, O God for all that you have done. Father, and we respond this morning in faith and in worship. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.